Welcome to Engage 360, Denver Seminary's podcast. Join us as we explore the redemptive power of the gospel and the life-changing truth of scripture at work in our culture today. Hello again, friends. You have reached Engage 360 from Denver Seminary. We're glad you're with us. My name is Don Payne. And this week, we are going to tackle a a tough topic that is um, often very little addressed, maybe even very little recognized. Let me set it up this way. It's not uncommon for uh, individuals in this world we inhabit to be stuck in situations that have conflicting values um, of great consequence and to be forced to make decisions sometimes of life-altering significance and then live with the the dilemma, the what-ifs, the uh, coulda, shoulda, woulda dimensions of those decisions that can haunt a person for a lifetime. Uh, Very recently, somewhat recently, these dilemmas have been uh, captured in the phrase moral injury. Um, we have with us as our guest this week, Brandon Young. Brandon, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Don. Brandon is a current student at Denver Seminary, but is also a former Army Ranger who currently co-leads a group called Applied Leadership Partners with, uh, I believe your uh, partner is Blaine Smith. That's correct. correct. Uh, Blaine Himself is a former Green Beret. Their mission, if I can quote their website, is to guide leaders to apply to, to apply effective and sustainable leadership practices that build closely knit, high performing teams to excel in a complex world. Brandon is co-author of the Enriched Life Scale, which is used by the Department of Defense, and he personally has assessed, mentored, and trained over a thousand Rangers and served. Himself, I believe, four rotations in Afghanistan. Is that correct? That's correct. Well, Brandon, uh, not only welcome, but thanks uh, thanks for serving all of us so well and for so long. Yeah, um, Brandon has uh, agreed to be with us because he is currently giving a lot of attention to this category, this very troublesome category we call moral injury. So to, to launch us, Brandon, let's try to define this, this term or that I called it a phrase or a clause, moral mm-hmm. injury. What, what do we mean by that term, and, and how did we come by it? Yeah, so um, when we say moral injury, there's kind of a couple of layers to this or categories that we're talking about. This could be um, the injury upon you know, the soul of an individual as related to trauma that they have experienced. Uh, this could be the kind of injury uh, on somebody's soul because they have been put in a position where they have two deeply held values or ethics that must um, be chosen between. Um, and uh, you know, when you're in the in the stage of choosing between those moral values or those ethics, and you're confronted with two basically poor choices because both of those choices in some way conflict with your morals. Um, that is another way that moral injury can occur. And then another way that it can occur is when um, others, maybe who you are related to or who have some measure of authority or control over you, um, do things that are not keeping uh, with either the stated ethic or morals, or, and, and the individual is now left in a place where they cannot trust others. Um, whereas in the previous circumstance, uh, they're left in a place where they don't know if they can trust themselves. Okay, okay. Now, how did you how did you come 
into this kind of work? I, I know your experience in the Army is related to this, but um, it, from what I understand, moral, the category of moral injury has come to the surface, even as a field of research, mm-hmm. largely with regard to combat veterans yes. and some of the really gut-wrenching choices that combat veterans are called upon to make in the middle of combat. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how, did you, how did you get into this? Yeah, so um, in in 2014, so I had been out of the Army for about five years at this point in time, you know, was a sales director for a large medical diagnostics company and was making this great money. And um, uh, I had just prior to that, about two years prior, given my life to Christ. And I felt like I'm not where I'm supposed to be anymore. Um, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And Right when I decided that it's about time that I take a look elsewhere, uh, Blaine Smith, who is now my partner at Applied Leadership Partners at the time, was the executive director of an organization called Team Red, White, and Blue. Now, Team Red, White, and Blue is helping hundreds of thousands of veterans reconnect to their communities through physical and social activity and focusing on this idea of enriching lives. So Blaine says, hey, what do you think about joining us? And I say, I have absolutely no experience in nonprofit fundraising. And he says, we think you're going to be okay. And I took a jump, and I joined him at Team Red, White, and Blue. And what we were doing is we started to define what does this enrichment actually mean, right? And we came up with this enrichment equation, which was health, people, and purpose. So um, in order for somebody to have a rich life, they need to have these elements, right? Physical, mental health, spiritual health. They need to have sense of purpose. They need to have authentic relationships, people they can count on, and a sense of engaged citizenship. And what happened was, is we did all these events all over the country, right? So for the next four years, I was with, you know, Blaine and I were at Team Red, White, and Blue. It was an, kind of an upstart when we started, and then it turned into 212 locations, 150,000 veterans. And as we were getting into these themes, what we started to realize is that, you know, look, mental health is critical, right? There's, there's post-traumatic stress disorder, um, that has its own set of symptomology that, that becomes very difficult to actually live. Um, that's oftentimes exacerbated by traumatic brain injuries. Um, oftentimes that's even exacerbated more by sleep apnea. And all of these things are happening. And, and what, what we came to find out is that the more and more that we would sit with veterans and talk to them, the more and more you'd take them out on a run or you'd do yoga and we would be side by side you know, doing something and the conversation would start these themes that could not be explained by, you know, the, the psychological paradigm that we were operating under, the PTSDs, the TBIs, yeah. all these things kept emerging, like survivor's guilt. I, f- I feel so guilty, you know, that my buddy died and I didn't. Or I feel guilty that I didn't pull the trigger in this situation and I don't know what that led to. All of these themes of guilt and shame started to surface. And, and we really started to take a more keen interest on that. And, you know, we worked with organizations that are out there like Headstrong, you know, which, you know, originally started out of some uh, research stuff done at a Columbia University where they really started to talk about what's going on here, you know, at the moral level. And so that's where I first became familiar with it. Um, and then what I found on is that over the summer, Uh, As I was uh, taking pastoral care and counseling with Chaplain Eva Bleeker, um, we also had a lot of lectures by Dr. Jan McCormick, um, who is very well known in the military chaplaincy circles. 
Um, she probably wouldn't want me to say this, but I always tell people she kind of she basically wrote the book on military chaplaincy. So because well, in fact she did write the book on, <laughs> on it, <laughs> right? Yeah. So um, so we were getting all these lectures over the summer, and just to kind of bring it forward to where we are today. And meanwhile, my son was in U.S. Army basic training. The war in Afghanistan was drawing down. A lot of my friends, you know, fellow you know, comrades were starting to reach out and I'm reaching out. You see a lot of chatter that's out there, you know, and this hurt, you know, that is lying underneath the surface is just kind of coming up and out. And, you know, we, we were confronted with it. And, and in that time also, we had a lot of lectures with uh, Dr. McCormick teaching us all about moral injury. I'm glad you mentioned that because I actually have uh, a definition. I think this may be her published definition of moral injury. She calls it the injury or wound to the soul experienced as a result of a traumatic event, a disruption in an, in an individual's confidence and expectations about his or her own moral behavior or others' capacity to behave in a just and ethical manner, or the injury or wound in the soul that results when two deeply held ethics or beliefs collide and must result in choosing one ethic or belief over the other. Yep. That, um, that really captures, for me, a, a lot of life circumstance that are involved in, in positions of influence um, uh, just from a leadership perspective. Yeah. Uh, it's been clear to me for a long time that leaders are, are often called upon to make decisions from a range of menu options, if you will, all of which are bad, uh, including doing nothing. Right. Which and is a decision. Which is a, which is a decision, and anything you do, given the conflicting variables involved in these decisions, is going to somehow either hurt somebody, make you look bad in somebody else's eyes, or leave you with the realization that, to some extent, y- you did something that was far less than ideal. Yeah. I mean, to be euphemistic about it. Yeah. And, of course, this has become very acute in uh, military combat experience, and, and, and it sort of spreads out to many life circumstances. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and the, thing, the thing that you just said that I think is important then to pick up on is, um, and when you make those decisions between a host of poor choices— and you know that someone's going to be hurt no matter which way you go. Yeah. What then do you do with your shame for hurting somebody else? Yeah. And oftentimes we, we cover it up. We run from it. We hide from it. We want nothing to do with it. And it, and it turns into this, this demon lying in the dark that nobody wants to talk about because you can stack a whole lot of deception around what happened instead of just facing, you know, confronting actually the hard choice that you had to make and why you chose to make that choice. You know, it's, it's interesting that of, of all of the ways in which we might try to assuage that sense of guilt or shame, um, few of them ever turn out to be very effective. And, and I, I suppose w- we all may live with this in one way or another. Um, at, at various levels. I suppose even in an example like, well, I had no choice. Right. Or I did the best I could do. 
you, you would think that that might give a person a certain measure of, of comfort, but it still recycles. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you would, you would hope, but, you know, the question is, do we live in a culture that accepts, um, you know, do we live in a forgiving culture? I would say no. We mm-hmm. live in a pretty unforgiving culture, right? And so, you know, if there's no if there's no ability for engagement and forgiveness to occur, you know, statements like "I made the best decision that I could with the information that I had at the point in time" that's true, but that's also but it doesn't help. But it doesn't help because if you, if it's going to be bumped up against, yeah, but you hurt me, you know, you fill in the blank, however you want to answer that statement, yeah. right? Yeah. And I can't, how could I ever forgive you for what you did to me? Yeah. And how could I forgive myself, right? Yeah. That's another thing that, you know, the, the moral injury, I was, I was reading, um, you know, I, I was really confronted with this early in my family, you know, in many ways, the, the story of my family is the story of my service, they're so commingled, you know, in the in the military. Okay, and um, for me, you know, when when the towers fell on nine eleven, I was already a squad leader in the second ranger battalion. So okay. I was a staff sergeant. Um, so I was in control of a nine man ranger assault squad, right? Special operations unit, worldwide deployable within eighteen hours. Okay, and I had been there for four years. Um, Kelly, who would become my wife, who is my wife now, and I had been engaged to be married. Her mother had cancer. She had had chemotherapy uh, on the 10th of September. On the 11th of September, which was her birthday, she sat there watching the towers burn on television. You know, and she asked me, are you going to get involved in this? I said, yes. And then shortly thereafter, she went on hospice care. She went home. On September 17th, she uh, had a day of clarity. We called it Justice of the Peace Over, got married, because Kelly and I were supposed to get married in December. Um, Judy died two days later, and I deployed about six days later for my first trip. So I'm in Jordan now, and I have about 30 days, and I call home after 30 days, and Kelly says, I'm pregnant. So I'm like, of course you are. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) Fast forward nine months later, um, I'm listening to my son get born from an Iridium satellite phone in Bagram Air Base, Afghanistan, mm. while Kelly is delivering Jaden in Seattle, Washington. And if you back up a couple months prior to that, for me, where you know a lot of this started to really fester is I was in a position where I had two families that I had to choose between. Kelly, my, my, my family, my new family, and my ranger family. You know, I, and I had grown up, my dad had taken off on us when I was 11 years old. And so, you know, I never, I never wanted to be absent as a dad, and that's the first thing that I was. But the truth is, I chose that. You know, the truth is, is that uh, it, didn't, it wasn't but a 15-second conversation between my platoon sergeant and me in the hallway. You know we're ramping up and we're going. Yes, I know. You know we need you. Yep. I'll be there. And I lied about it. And I went home and told Kelly, 
They're sending me to Afghanistan with the unit. I have no choice in this. It doesn't matter what I say. And that may very well have been true, but it doesn't actually matter because the truth is I was going to be damned if I wasn't going to go to war with my Rangers. That's what I had been trained to do. That's what I was prepared to do. That's all I ever wanted to be was a soldier. And therein starts the roots of this moral injury, Mm. you know, inside of me. I had two families to love and care for. One family, mom's just passed away, pregnant. Dad is not present because mom is gone and now, you know, she's hurting. Husband's gone in the war. The other family, I'm a leader. I'm responsible for these rangers. You know, it's on me. I'm 23 years old. And that was the situation that I was confronted with. Yeah. I was 23 years old. Yeah. And that's the situation I was confronted with. Yeah. Yeah. And that, um, there's no easy moral calculus to, to work on that kind of a situation to simply make it go away. Yep. And one of the reasons that I think we, we need to be paying attention to this, Brandon, is that in, uh, in, in Christian environments like ours, where we have a, a very, a very high regard for a, a d- divine revelation, authoritative revelation, moral absolutes, yep, you know values that theologically we hold deeply and dearly, mm-hmm. that that seems to bring with it this sort of sidecar, if I will, <laughs> if I may. Um, this this sidecar assumption that we ought always to be able to choose from clean options, right and wrong, and you simply do the right thing. Now, of course, we can put some—I'm going to be just bluntly honest here—we can, we can put some nifty theological language to this, sure. like, well, of course, under the Spirit's guidance, or in keeping with the Word of God. Now, all of those are true, and— as we start to navigate the, the weeds, the, the sometimes torturous weeds of life's brokenness, we're just rather uh, uh, bluntly confronted with the reality that many of the decisions we're called on to make, at, at a lot of different levels, are not clean options. They're dirty options. Yep. Or they're at least m- mixed and, and jumbled with yeah. full, full of trade-offs. Trade-offs, yep. Yeah, full of trade-offs. And that, that's why, even though this, this conversation is maybe in its most acute form with combat veterans, it kind of uh, spreads out into all areas of life for people who are uh, making decisions about all kinds of things Yeah, on a daily basis. Uh, absolutely. I mean, and even, even though it is, you know, the acuity of, let's call it, where we are, Right here, right now. It is September 13th, 2021. Two days ago, we had the 20th anniversary of 9-11, right? We just exited Afghanistan, you know, with all the stuff that happened there, August 31st. And yes, it's acute. You know, we're looking at moral injury, and it's timely because it is, you know, elevated to the surface of the consciousness of a lot of the veterans, which, frankly, only represents less than 1% of the population of Americans actually served in Afghanistan or Iraq over the last 20 years, right? But 
I think what we know as followers of Jesus is that when we when we dig into Scripture and we can see these illustrations, you know, whether it be, um, you know, you and I were talking earlier, Rahab and the spies, or whether it be, um, you know, the parable of the talents, these are windows that can be opened up that expose eternal truths. Mm-hmm. So I think that we're looking at moral injury through the lens of combat veterans right now, and more acutely through the lens of 20-year war in Afghanistan. But the reality of it is the other 99% of people in American culture who didn't go to Afghanistan probably have some feels around Afghanistan, around the war, and probably also have a lot of feels and are confronted day to day with different decisions that feel like I got to make a choice between a bunch of bad choices here. Yeah. And, and so I think what my, my, my hope is, is that this is an opportunity, you know, for us to to raise this to the surface, because, I mean, take a look around us right now. You know, we have we have a. We have a cultural moment right now where I think the injuriousness of the way that we are living is felt writ large. You want to talk about moral injury. We live in a culture right now that has embraced relativism. You mentioned moral absolute earlier, you know, just a few moments ago in the conversation. Fact of the matter is, is that whether you're here or whether you're in Afghanistan, which I can attest to because I've done both, people basically know what right and wrong is. And we have this moment where, you know, we're confronted with all this relativism and we're trying to figure it out. And that's coming, you know, banging up against what we feel inside our heart, that sense of, I I just don't feel right about this. Yeah. Relativism, pure, true relativism. That's an oxymoron, isn't it? True relativism. (laughs) (laughs) But pure relativism would actually give one an out. On all of this, there sure. would be there would be no real basis for the kind of guilt and shame we're talking about in a right. relativistic world. But intrinsically, we know right because and and I love that you said that because the reality of it is, then why is there so much shame and guilt in the world? Yeah, right. Yeah, if if it's all if everything goes, what's the problem? And that's what I that's what I see you know unfolding all the time you know, in front of us. I think we all see it. Yeah, because we have that innate yes. sense that there, there, there is such a thing as good and bad. There really as, is. As right and wrong, even mm-hmm. though in, you know, the brokenness, the almost incalculable brokenness of the world we inhabit, those things can get so tangled that it's hard to discriminate sometimes. But they exist. Right. They're things. Yes. They're real things. Absolutely. And and so I love the way you put this, Brandon, that, that combat veterans are really kind of a, a window of sorts into something that's always been there and that everybody lives with in some way. That That's just sort of a diagnostic window because it is a very acute form of it. Absolutely. Um, uh, let's talk a little bit about what this maybe helps us see that has not, um, has not previously been as visible to us, even if it's been there. What is through, looking through this diagnostic window of moral injury? What, what kinds of things is this helping us pay attention to now with with the broader populace, with everybody? Yeah, I think what it can help us pay attention to is um, honestly how much hurt 
is actually out there that needs, you know, to be loved, right? I, I, one, of the, one of the biggest things that, one of the biggest verses uh, in things that Jesus said in his life has really stuck with me during this time, which is, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and yeah. I will give you rest. I think what this time gives us the opportunity to do is take a look around us to see who are weary and heavy laden right now mm. and needs rest. And and you think about what does that mean? You know, what does it mean to be, you know, weary and burdened, right? We carry the burdens of, you know, everyday life. We carry the burdens of our decisions in those leadership moments. We carry the burden of, you know, how did I hurt one person, whether I was, you know, trying my best to do the right thing. We carry all these things. You don't have to be, you know, a soldier standing at the gates of Hamid Karzai International Airport in Kabul to know what that feels like mm-hmm. and to know that you're carrying something, right? I mean, I think about my mother, single mother of three, working four jobs, you know, to keep three kids alive. That's a host of bad options. Can I be yeah. there for my kids or can I work so that my kids can stay in their community? Mm-hmm. Well, I have to work to you know stay in the community. Yeah. So now I can't be there for my kids. I mean, how many single parents out there are holding this kind of, you know, weariness and this burden? And and I think that what it allows us to do, you know, just with that small example there, again, these are all, you know, examples. They're all illustrations of the human condition living you know, in a corrupted creation, right? But what are we doing about it? What are we going to actually do about it, right? And we live in a world where we all carry this little pot thing in our pocket, and it's really easy. I'm holding up an iPhone right now, and it's really easy to run away, to hide, you know, to, um, or, or, you know, to be a you know, social media warrior and lob comments, you know, faceless comments out at people. Uh, you know, you can see it all the time, people arguing at each other. There's so much hurt occurring right now all across the board. And so I, to me, what I, what I think it says is, you know, if we take it through the veteran example, okay, just a small example, yeah. 1% of the American population right now this this moment that came and went in the news cycle, you know, back August 31st, because the reality of it is, is that's what happened. You know, it, it came back up on the news cycle towards mid-August, and right after we withdrew, it's now on the back end. We've already moved on. It's September 13th, and we've already moved yeah, on. Yeah, we're not thinking about it that much anymore, right? No, but the reality of it is people like me have been thinking about it for 20 years mm. every day. Mm. You know, I talked to a friend of mine, um, you know, a short while ago who was telling me, you know, about a decision that he made in combat where he did not pull the trigger. And he could have, but he didn't because he had a he had a host of two bad choices. Do I treat this casualty that we just took or do I engage this person who could be an enemy? I'm not sure. He could have been the one that clacked off, you know, the the improvised explosive device. He made a split decision. He chose to treat the casualty, right? This person has thought about that moment at least three times a week for the last 12 years. Mm. And so the, the, that's what I think, I, that's what I think the, the opportunity for us to do is right now. So you take that as a small example, right? Now, he and I have sat down. We've talked through some things, you know, and, and you know, we, 
come alongside, you know, people like this and, and show them love. And, you know, maybe maybe I, I have a different perspective. I, I do have a different perspective on that. And we talked through that because we know that in split second decisions, we're trained to look at hands and see if there's anything there. There was not, wasn't there. Nothing was there. Okay. So you probably made the right choice, actually. And that validation, right? We need to be validated in some ways or affirmed for making a difficult choice between two poor options by people who love us and who come alongside us. And so what does that tell us right now about what we can do with moral injury in the greater scheme of things? How many people are hiding right now in plain sight, managing their reputations, because that's what we're trained to do with social media. We're rewarded for it. Yeah. Is make sure you get as many followers and likes as you possibly can. Yeah, then your life's good. Yeah, you know, let me let me let me post my perfect moment of my life. Now I'm not going to show you the fact that I had a meltdown with my kids. You know, it's all reputation management. And you know, when we think about the hurts that we accrue through our lives, and then how we try to cover it, that's a brand of deception. But we have to cover it because we have to be perfect. Right? Yeah. I mean, we see that all over the place. We see it in our churches, and we see it out in the community. Nobody's immune to this. Um, you know, my wife and I uh, serve at a um, marriage ministry called Reengage at Mission Hills Church right here in Littleton. And one of the things that we always encourage people is you can stop managing your reputation here. We're going to come alongside you. You know, it's going to be, you know, <laughs> it's going to be God's spirit, God's people, God's word, we're going to dig in. It's going to be focused around Christ. We're going to ask you to stay in your circle, and you need to speak about yourself, not what your spouse did, because, by the way, like 75% of the people are coming in saying, like, fix my spouse, yeah. right? Um, and, and we're going to stay committed to this. And we walk through this stuff, and the, the amazing thing and the power that happens when people stop managing their reputation and they actually tell the truth, you know, this is what happened, and ask for forgiveness. I'm sorry, will you please forgive me? Instead of, instead of the deception and hiding, you're now taking, you know, your heart and putting it, laying it at the foot of the other person and asking them to forgive you. You've just put the control in their hands. Yeah. That's the kind of stuff that I think, you know, we can be looking at and doing regardless of the circumstance, is stop managing our reputation. You know, we all have these personas. I can't have a relationship with a persona. <laughs> you know, I can have a relationship with a personality, with a person. I can't have one with a persona. Yeah, yeah. You know, as I was preparing for our conversation, Brandon, it was, it was going through my mind, what, what does this illuminate for us theologically and pastorally? And you've, you've already hit on a number of those things. Um, and... And it occurred to me that, or I, the, the question arose in my mind, whether in broad strokes, many Christians may have a sort of formal theology of the fallenness of the created order, the fallenness of human persons. But we may not come to grips, we may not have come to grips with the depths of that fallenness, the depths of the brokenness that that constitutes even the situations in which we have to make these gut-wrenching choices that create moral injury. Yeah. Um, now, that's, that's not merely to 
underscore how bad things are. That's really uh, to highlight the that, or that's a that's a backdrop against which Christ's redemption yeah. is then highlighted as um, perhaps showing us that we need redemption even more deeply than we know we need redemption. We need reconciliation of even more things than we maybe thought we needed reconciliation. Yeah. Um, you know, I, it, it makes me wonder, as I've wrestled with this kind of thing, now the, the phrase moral injury is a relatively new thing to me, yeah. uh, but what we're talking about has been something I've wrestled with for decades. And it's, uh, it's come to me that um, when when we make these decisions and we do the, the best thing we know to do at the time and, and maybe of a, you know, of a range of bad options we're choosing from, we choose the one that is the best option or the least bad <laughs> right, right. option. Yeah. Um, and and that, that's affirmed to us and, and that, that is meaningful and helpful. I wonder whether we still need and, and, and are invited to offer ourselves up to the Lord for forgiveness, even for things that were inevitable for us, mm-hmm. to receive his forgiveness and his grace and his reconciliation, uh, even when we did the best that we could do because we showed up into a situation where we were forced maybe to do evil. Yeah. You know, again, even if that was the best thing we could do. Right. We did somebody wrong. We right. hurt somebody. Yeah. And Lord, God have mercy on me. Right. Because I'm a sinner. Yeah. You know? I mean that that just speaks to the the vastness of the dimensions of our need for grace and mercy and forgiveness and reconciliation. And the vastness of the offer. Yeah. Of that. That yeah. it's it's there. Yeah, for I, us. I I totally agree with you. You you know the idea of this calculus that we make between, you know, poor choices. Yeah. And I'm going to choose the least poor, right? The the do the least amount of damage, yeah. right? That's great, and it's a great philosophical lens by which to look at, you know, a decision. But it still doesn't change the fact that you may be carrying that hurt. I, I still did what I did. I still did what I did. Right? Yeah, I still left my wife to deliver and carry a baby on her own. Now I still had duty, you know, to yeah. my country and to my men. But I still did that. Yeah. And it still, you know, hurt. And so what do we do with that? Yeah. The other thing that, you know, that I think is important for us to look at is, you know, okay, so so what, right? So we feel bad. So what? What do we do with that? Reconciliation. You know, the word that you use, reconciliation. You know, which is, I mean, that is, that's Christ. I am, I'm yeah. coming for you. Yeah. I am coming for yeah. you. Right? And the offers here, if you will just, you know, accept it. If you will lose your life, you will gain it, yeah. right? The, the, the point of, I think, a lot of what can we do right now with this is I think it's aimed towards that reconciliation. I think it's aimed towards can we start unpacking some of this stuff in a way and ask God to help us? <laughs> so that we can get through this together, not apart. Yeah, yeah. Like, how do we actually do that? that? That's that's really where I'd like us to kind of close the loop on this, Brandon. And you've already pointed us in some of these directions. But if you if you had to sit before 
pastors, other ministry leaders, or or f- friends who have friends who they suspect may be managing the persona. What are the two or three most important things you would tell them about how to how to spot this, or how to move into the lives, move alongside the lives of people who have been morally injured? Yeah, um, a couple things. So first of all, I think belonging is the start. Belonging is a powerful lubricant to begin the relationship. And what I mean when I say that is. You know, you're in, you're on the team. I don't know your story. I don't know what you did. I don't know what happened over in the war or what happened in your marriage or anything like that. But here, here you belong. Mm. Here you are loved. We're not going to do it perfectly, but we're going to do it in earnest. So I think number one is belonging. That's well said. Number two is trust. And there is no, there's no shortcut to relationship that leads to trust period. There's just no shortcut. You know, my, my partner Blaine and I talk a lot about a model that we, 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 we think about for trust, and we call it CARE. It's a silly little acronym. We're both Army dudes. Acronyms are See, our yeah, thing, right? We do do acronyms. That's yes. right. We, we, we roll deep on acronyms. <laughs> yeah. But it's a way to build trust, and it stands for candor, authenticity, reliability, and empathy. Now, if you can, if you can operate with somebody with candor, right, a proactive brand of honesty— Candor is not a license to be a jerk, right? Well, it's just I'm a candid person. No. It's a proactive brand of honesty, right? That kind of eliminates the deception we talked about. All right. Authenticity. Be who you are and let other people be who they are, wherever they are. That goes back to that belonging piece. Reliability, right? Say what you mean and do what you say. And then empathy. Understanding that, look, I... My, my partner says this all the time, and I, I, I really love it when he says this. He always says, you know, people say all the time, like, I can never imagine how that feels. And he says, try. Try to imagine. <laughs> try to imagine how that person feels. Try to imagine how that single parent feels right now, you know? Try to imagine how that veteran feels right now. Just yeah. try. You'll get further than you would if you didn't try. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so the the belonging and the and the trust, you know, are two big things. And then I would just say the last thing is show up. That's what that's what needs to happen right now. If you're look, if you're a pastor, um, you know, if you're if you're a, a member of a church. Uh, if you're not one of those people and you're listening to this and you're, you're a person that's just out there in the community and you know a veteran, so I'm going to talk specifically about veterans right now, okay. show up, reach out. And what that looks like is this, Don. Hey, you want to grab a cup of coffee? Hey, you want to go for a walk? You want to go for a run? Hey, I'm going to go for a hike. You want to come with me? Be present and welcome them into what you're doing or just come alongside them. And don't feel the burden to have the answers because you don't. And we're not expecting you to. I think that's what we can all do is, you know, there's not a single veteran out there that expects a civilian to just all of a sudden, you know, illuminate, you know, make meaning out of their entire war experience. Okay. That's not realistic. Frankly, Don, there's not a whole lot of veterans that are expecting another veteran to help them unpack meaning, Mm. you know. That's happening at the soul level, right? Every one of us has got to take that journey where we ask those hard questions. And, and if you're a veteran listening to this, 
ask those hard questions. If you're a human being and you have a heartbeat and ears listening to this, ask yourself questions. What is it that you're ashamed of? What is it you don't want anyone to ever find out about? I never wanted anyone to know that I, the guy who was left as an 11-year-old boy, left my baby boy before I even got the chance to you know, see him enter into the world. I was ashamed of that. I even wrote it in my journal from Afghanistan. I am so ashamed right now, right? Nobody but Christ can help me, you know, mend that wound. Nobody but God can help be the salve that puts that over, you know, that hole in my heart. Mm -hmm. And I've got to be willing to surrender that to God and stop trying to do it on my own and manage my reputation and be perfect, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so... My encouragement is come alongside people, show up and be present, be their friend, just be there for them. And you just might be blown away by what happens. Final kind of thought on that, Don, is this weekend I had the chance to run with the Colorado Run for the Fallen, right? So what we did, they did 115 miles. Um, My wife and my son and a good friend of mine and me joined in on Sunday we ran the last 35 miles with them. Um, not all of them. just want to be clear. Okay. I only okay. ran 16 of them, but my son crushed it. He put in 25 miles. No joke. And um, so we're in the RV, you know, the support van, and there's a guy there, and he's a civilian, and he and I are talking to each other. And, you know, I just tell him, like, I just asked him, like, hey, I said, I really appreciate you being here, you know, with all of us as we honor all these fallen service members. Why do you do it? Why are you here? And, you know, he just said, I, I just, I appreciate the service. I appreciate the service that anybody does. You know, he said, like, I'm a meat cutter in a market. You know, like another buddy of mine's a meat cutter and, you know, he goes and serves his neighbor. Like, he's serving. I appreciate anybody who has a heart, hmm. you know, to serve somebody else. And if I can just show up and be here with you guys and just make sure that you know that I see you, like, I don't know. Maybe that'll be good enough. And I said to him, you know what my favorite part of these kind of events are? He said, what? I said, you. Civilians who are showing up just to be with us. Because the truth is, we've been holding this for 20 years. This is not just a flashbulb moment on the screen, you know, and on the news. And that's what I really want people to know who are not veterans or somehow connected to the military, you know, establishment. Don't just move on from this. Don't move on from this because, you know what, this is a cultural moment for us as a, as a country. I reject any kind of, you know, commentary that says the last 20-year war in Afghanistan was meaningless. I reject that. You go stand in front of a Gold Star mom and you tell her that this was meaningless. You know, you come alongside people like me who have so many friends who I've lost and tell me it was meaningless. It wasn't meaningless. That's not true. If you find this meaningless, you're not doing the work. You need to have the courage to not run and look away from whatever you're holding related to this war, whatever shame or pain that you're holding, right? Because, oh, by the way, you know, the military just represent, is just representation of the United States. That's all we are. We're a reflection of our country. And 93% of the American population has never served in the military. That's okay. You don't have to serve in the military. You're serving in plenty of other places. You're serving. You've been serving your whole life. You've been serving Christ your whole life, Don. There's plenty of ways to serve, right? 
and 20 years, we got five presidential administrations that have had, you know, their say in this. We have a whole country that has been in on the voting process and has been a part of this. If you find this meaningless, ask yourself this question, are you looking away? Mm. Are you looking away from, from your part that you played in this? And I don't say that to shame anybody because I'm going to say it again. You're in. You belong. If, you know, I'm with you. You're with me, right? I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. None of us are perfect. It's fine. I still love you. I don't care who you voted for. I don't care what your political ethos is. I love you, right? Challenge yourself to find meaning in this and do that by not looking away, but figuring out what just happened here. Brandon, you've taken us to places we need to think about for a long time. Thank you, friend. Yeah. Thanks for your service. Thanks for um, your insightful articulation of really, really tough matters that are ultimately going to point us back to the only source that can give us any, any genuine healing, the redemption of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for that. Amen. You're welcome. Friends, thanks for spending some time with us today, this week on Engage 360. As uh, many of you will know, our mission statement is to train men and women to engage the needs of the world with the redemptive power of the gospel and the life-changing truth of Scripture. And I think our conversation today with Brandon Young has been a really good example of that. Uh, we're gl- grateful for you spending time with us, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us. Our address is podcast at denverseminary.edu. And we'd love for you to check out our brand new website as well, just released last week. And we've got a fresh new look and lots of great resources there. It's at denverseminary.edu. Thanks as always to Krista Ebert, our ever faithful and competent sound engineer, for all the good work that she does. And we will look forward to talking to you again really soon. Take care, friends.